This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 18 of Inside COVID-19. A very special edition today with a couple of ICU inmates, one local and another from New York. We've also got Zelda Lechransi sharing what would Madiba advise. And we'll hear how Vodacom is investing hundreds of millions right now to ensure its network can handle a 50% surge in lockdown data traffic. Plus, U.S. President Donald Trump explains why he's suspending financial support to the World Health Organization. Inside COVID-19 from Business. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, the South African death toll rose by 7 to 34. Six of them were from KwaZulu-Natal and five of the new ones had underlying medical issues, including a 91-year-old with diabetes. The two with no known medical problems before COVID-19 were both 79 years old. A statement from South Africa's Department of Health says total confirmed infections have now risen to 2,506. That's an increase of 4% on the day. Globally, confirmed infections broke through the 2 million mark, with deaths now approaching 130,000. The mortality rate in the UK is rising too, and now almost at the top of the league at 12%. European countries have had the highest proportion of deaths, with Spain at 38.6 per 100,000 of its population, followed by Belgium at 36, Italy at 35, France at 23, the UK at 18, and the Netherlands at 17. The US's mortality rate per 100,000 is 7.8, while South Africa is a long way behind all of those at 0.05. As mentioned in the intro, the big news today is that U.S. President Donald Trump has suspended his country's funding of the World Health Organization. It's an about turn from February the 24th when Trump praised the WHO in a tweet saying it was, quote, Working hard and very smart, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA, unquote. The U.S. is now the world's worst hit country with 24,000 deaths and over 600,000 confirmed cases, with Trump now claiming that the World Health Organization is responsible by being too deferential to China. Again, in January, Trump praised China's response to the coronavirus. More on that story later in this episode. Still in the U.S., the state of South Dakota has deviated from the national theme, with its governor, Kristi Noom, refusing to impose any kind of lockdown She described such edicts as, quote, herd mentality, unquote, saying it was up to individuals, not the government, to decide, quote, whether to exercise their right to work, to worship and to play or even to stay at home, unquote. South Dakota's experience is now sure to be closely watched by all the other states. It currently has just six deaths from 988 confirmed infections. It's always good to be talking to people from the front line, as it were, of the fight against COVID-19. And Dr. Liam Brannigan 
is one of those. Liam, in the research before our conversation, I see that you are what is called an intensivist. In other words, somebody who works in, in helping patients in intensive care. Have I got that right? Uh, yes, that is correct. I'm an intensive care specialist, otherwise known as an intensivist. Before we go into the South African issue and, and the other discussion we're having, we know that the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in intensive care in the UK for three days. He was on oxygen but not on a respirator and people outside of the medical fraternity are wondering why is that relevant. Can you unpack what might have happened there? Yes, so one of the reasons for being admitted to the intensive care unit, particularly for coronavirus, but for for other viral pneumonias um, and other types of of pneumonias is because of hypoxemia or low levels of oxygen um, in the blood. This can obviously be the precursor to, to multi-organ failure. So it's one of the commonest reasons why we admit someone to an intensive care unit. And certainly one of the issues around the use of a ventilator in, or not is one of the big controversial issues because the ventilator is, is in, of itself something that, that causes lung injury in the context of, of viral pneumonia. So often the patients are just admitted for oxygen therapy and other treatments. And we actively avoid ventilating them. Um, and then if we do have to ventilate them, we employ something called lung protective strategies. When you get to the point with COVID-19 that you need to go to hospital, uh, that's usually that you need specialist care. When that doesn't work out, you land up in ICU. And if I understand you correctly, that's where you need oxygen first. And if that doesn't work out, then it's a last resort almost to ventilator. Uh, yes, and leaning on, on years and years of um, experience with viral pneumonias, as a sort of central tenant, we always try to avoid invasive ventilation of these patients. And we often have no choice but to do that. But it's very correct to say that it, it's, a, it, it's quite far down the management line and, and certainly shouldn't be in a, a primary priority for, um, for clinicians to get patients onto ventilators. That's not the treatment of this disease. Liam, how accurate are the reports that say once you're on a ventilator, the chances are very high you're never going to come out of hospital alive with COVID-19? It's very important to contextualize uh, those reports. Equally important is the context of who the ventilator was given to. So certainly patients who are older, who have a lot of comorbid disease, so lots of other problems, um, these patients tend to do significantly worse in all circumstances um, if they require organ support such as ventilation. So I think the, the reports are, are quite accurate that, that the mortality rate is high on the ventilator but should be contextualized with respect to the age of the patients going onto the ventilator, their comorbid disease, um, which may contribute to the seriousness of their multi, sort of multi-organ failure scenario that they find themselves in. But certainly the reports out of the, the first world are, I think, accurate. What drew you to this side of medicine? Uh, I, I see you were a heli doctor, which presumably is someone who really has to go into uh, situations where people are very critically uh, or, or where the health is, is, is critical. And then you've been in critical care, and as you say, an intensivist. Why? Um, I think for me and, and for most of my colleagues, um, there, there's an, I, I did medicine to help um, really sick patients, and so the sickest patients um, tend, to, tend to occur in, uh, in the intensive care unit. 
but also the work is is fascinating um, the science behind it is is fascinating it's a it's a constantly growing field um and dealing with um people and their, or patients and their families at that time is also extremely rewarding because it's generally a very traumatic time for families and and the patients and and so on multiple levels it's an extremely rewarding profession you spend a lot of time with critically ill patients, presumably those who've had transplants, those whose immune systems are specifically lowered so that the, the, the organs won't be rejected by the body. Yes, so certainly these are the patients, particularly at the hospital where I work, where, that we are most concerned for. The reality is, is that whilst it makes scientific and physiological sense that those patients be at high risk, etc., we just don't know what the impact will be if and when the, the, the sort of tsunami of the COVID-19 outbreak hits us. We're trying our best to both prepare for that inevitability and also to try and make sure that we have the resource available to treat those patients should they get ill with COVID-19 and, and require assistance. But they, they are a, a big concern for us and and sort of in my area uh, remain my number one priority at the moment and concern. How do you advise them? The most important thing for them to do is to stay away from public interaction. So we really encourage them to to isolate aggressively and then that we stay in constant contact with them with respect to symptom management, identification and management, and that if they escalate uh, in terms of their symptomatology, that we, we get them in um, a lot earlier than we would say get a patient with a normal uh, immune system into the hospital. So most immune competent patients we would suggest to manage at home. The immuno-incompetent patients, we would be a bit more wary about the rapidity with which they could become really critically ill. There is a school of thought that says, go the Swedish way, allow everybody just to mingle and get the herd immunity, and if people die, well, people die. And you can almost have some sympathy from an economic perspective for that argument. Yeah, so Alec, I think, again, it's a very complex problem, but um, but one that we talk about every day. So... So the first issue is um, is around the baseline mortality that exists around the world it seems to be very different. So you can be in one country with a mortality rate of about 1% and then in another country with a mortality rate of near 12 or 13%. I mean, and that's a tenfold increase in your risk of dying. So, so that's problematic. The, the second issue is that um, there is some credence to to what you would call an intelligent lockdown um, where you would then say, for example, keep the schools open and the low-risk populations working and isolate higher-risk populations such as the elderly and immunocompromised. Um, this can be quite difficult to do from a resource um, point of view, and we just don't know if that would result in, in herd immunity. There's some controversy with respect to coronavirus as a group in terms of herd immunity as well. And then lastly, the issue around the economic impact and whether or not that may result in a significant economic downturn and the, and the impact on uh, mortality that that would have. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's really a constant um, issue and concern. And this, I think, is where, where the South African government, and I'm sure you saw Prof Karim's report on a couple of nights ago, is, I think, doing exactly what it should do, which is 
to try and respond preemptively, but in the most non-invasive ways so that the collateral impacts of this um, pandemic are limited and we, and we don't land up sitting with a lot of problems that, are, that we ourselves create. A lot of your fellow scientists have said that science doesn't work at the speed of newspapers. In, yes. in other words, it just takes it, it, it goes a lot more slowly. But even yes. in, in that context, how long do you think it might be before we have enough knowledge to know with certainty what to do about this, whether it's opening the lockdown, whether it's, it's getting a vaccine, whether it's which drugs to use for those who are infected? That's quite a difficult question to answer because I think in the context of the infodemic that we face nowadays as well with constantly being being given huge amounts of information, some of it not very good um, in terms of the disease, it's quite difficult to know what to do in the face of this um, pandemic. A vaccine, etc., is probably quite some time away. I would think no earlier than September or October this year at the earliest. Um, and the key really will be whether we can get that going as soon as possible to try and prevent the infection from occurring. Well, Vodacom has announced today that it's going to be spending 500 million rand within two months to expand the network capacity during this COVID-19 state of disaster. Andres Delport, who's the Chief Technology Officer, joins us. That's a lot of money, Andres, 500 million over two months. Where exactly is it going to go? I I think it is no secret that um, during lockdown, lockdown, um, traffic increases in the network, not so much voice traffic, but data traffic increases significantly. And as people work from home, um, those people who aren't working are watching more videos and TV, etc. Data is up 45%. You know, Alec, it was strange, well, not strange, but one day it was at a certain level. Friday, it was 45% up. So it is a, a significant jump in one day to get a network to cater for that significant jump in traffic. You have to invest. And that is what we've done. And that's what you have decided to do. But just explain that, because if your capacity is X uh, on on Friday, as you say, suddenly you've got to find almost 50% more capacity. How do you handle something like that? What one must understand is people move around in the mobile network. So at night they yeah, and in the, you know at home, in the day they're at their offices. So in the day I have to have capacity, we have to have capacity for all the people to be at the offices. And at night you have to have um, capacity where they're at home. So you always have some spare capacity because of the mobility of a mobile network. So, you know, that helps you a bit. What I must also say is, of course, certain sites go into congestion and it's then our job to try and upgrade capacity as quickly as we can. The the other thing that we have done as well is we normally plan a network uh, on an annual basis based on the traffic that we will carry in December, for instance. Traffic that you carry in December is normally higher than what you do during the year. So if you plan for that capacity, you are doing quite well. So people are now working from home. How practically, just in terms that we can understand, do you go about making sure that everybody actually does have enough bandwidth? We have 14,000 or 14 to 15,000 base stations around the country. And, of course, these are the things that carry the traffic from the subscriber devices, the handsets and the modems and all of that. So when you upgrade capacity, you have to upgrade it on the base stations. 
Now, sometimes this capacity is just configuration. You know, you buy extra licenses, invest in extra licenses, and you activate. Sometimes you actually have to install more equipment on the base station to, to add capacity to the base station. The next part of it, when the traffic hits the base station, it get, has to get into the network as well. What we use there, or what we call it, we call it transmission links. So it's effectively links, pipes, pipes from the base station into the network. If the traffic increases, you often also have to increase the traffic on those pipes. There are many peaks, Easter, Christmas, etc., during the year as well. So we always have some spare capacity in the core network. We never, never run the core network hot, 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 that you can't accommodate any spikes in traffic. Now, just to compound everything, you also have a big cut in your data prices from the 1st of April. How much of an impact has that had to the usage of the network? I think it's actually very difficult to say, you know, because all of these things coincided more or less. Um, you know, that we had the lockdown, well, in the middle of the month. Then you have the normal end of month peak. Um, the traffic is always a little bit higher at the end of the month. And that coincided with the um, reduction in tariffs. So it's, it's difficult to say. I can't say exactly what percentage you can attribute to what. But as I say, you know, I, um, still a 50% increase, 45% increase in data traffic and the network has to carry it. South Africans are using their mobile phones a lot more and their, their network a lot more. Is it primarily to use data or are people connecting more with each other uh, on voice? Could you, are you able to break that down in yes. the days of, of WhatsApp? No, no, definitely, definitely. Look, I can tell you voice, the normal voice, not the WhatsApp voice, but the normal mobile cellular voice is more or less flat. You know, there's hardly any increase. Five points, five percentage points increase on one day, the next day flat again. So voice, pure voice, we don't see a major increase. Um, so I can tell you now, um, quickly, YouTube and Netflix um, data growth uh, is between 30 and 100%. WhatsApp is more than 50% increase in WhatsApp. So you can definitely see people are watching more videos and people are commu communicating much more via WhatsApp. And we, and, we, and we see those trends on the fixed network as well. Remember, we have a mobile network. We also have a fixed network and same trends. The interesting thing, though, is the fixed network is by this number, 250% increase, increase in fixed traffic. Is that the, um, the fiber lines? Look, the nice thing about fiber lines, they have more capacity. You know, so when you install a fiber line, you have a lot of capacity. That can allow the traffic to grow over years, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, traffic increases like that on fiber lines is not as severe as traffic increases on mobile networks. Andres, is there enough capacity in the Vodacom network or maybe the whole uh, South African uh, uh, mobile network if the lockdown continues, in other words, have you been putting in uh, fixes to make sure that you can manage all the uh, demand that we're seeing at the moment? Or is there sufficient for this, should the lockdown continue, that we're still going to be able to communicate? For now, it is sufficient. But what one must also remember, many 
schools are closed, many universities are closed. So if the lockdown continues, we expect that we will see an increase in data growth again. Um, so for a, for a week or two or three, it was fine, but we see that it will increase. If we look at our investment plans and our capacity plans, these are not just only short-term plans. We haven't only planned for 21 days um, lockdown or five weeks lockdown. We've planned that this can continue for the next six months. So our plans, of course, everything cannot be done overnight. But as you and I speak here, we have people busy installing capacity in the network. And we have staff, we have contractors that are busy um, doing that. I think a good thing as well is for you know those people who f- follow the spectrum debate in South Africa, um, the minister and the regulator are going to assign temporary spectrum to the mobile networks as well, which will be hugely beneficial for us to upgrade capacity um, in the network. Some of the equipment that we have in the network can already make use of the spectrum. If you don't have a license, you can't switch it on. As soon as you have the temporary license, you can enable the spectrum and that adds capacity to the base station. And that is a direct result of COVID-19? Direct result of COVID-19. Many South Africans are becoming frustrated with a lockdown that has already been extended by a fortnight and could go even longer. Zelda Lechransi, who spent 19 years as Nelson Mandela's PA, says she was compelled to share her lessons that her late boss and the South African icon would have had for his countrymen, things he learned during his own 27 years of confinement on Robben Island. Here's an edited version of her full podcast, which you'll find on Spotify and Podbean. I often think of Nelson Mandela, or Madiba, as we fondly refer to him by his clan name, and how he managed for 18 of the 27 years in prison in such a tiny prison cell. How did he remain hopeful? He was truly someone special. This podcast is inspired by his hope, dreams, endurance and the resilience of his human spirit. During our many travels, our meals together over 19 years, I asked many questions. In me, he had the perfect audience. My questions sometimes blunt and as time progressed and my understanding of his life's purpose clearer, often filled with anger when I thought of his imprisonment. How is it humanly possible to remain hopeful over so many years? There must have been times where resentment and anger overshadow these days, something we can get familiar with in a time like this. But on countless occasions he said to me, You know, I found in prison that it's easier to change others than it is to change yourself. You have to work much harder at yourself than being concerned with other people. I often asked him, How did you get up every morning not knowing whether this ordeal will ever end? And his reassurance to me rings so true now. You live your life by purpose, principles and ideals, and that is what should encourage you every day. There are many lessons to be learned in parallels drawn between Nelson Mandela's survival of imprisonment and the worldwide lockdown that I decided to talk about these in a podcast. I have no idea on what day of lockdown we are. Unless I check social media, I don't know whether it's day 8, 11, 15, I just don't know. But you see, for us there is an ending. 
wherever you are in the world, there will be a date when measures of lockdown will be relaxed. That is our due date. For Nelson Mandela, there was no such date for almost 27 years. Remember, this was a time before technology. Prisoners lost sense of time without calendars, newspapers and watches to wear. It is something that appeared peculiar to me for many years. But now being in lockdown, I kind of understand it. You lose all sense of time. In prison, after a year or two, he surely thought that there may be relief soon, only to find that three years, later five, then ten passed with no possibility of an imminent release. He never counted the days or hours he was imprisoned like they do in the movies. When he could later get a calendar, he would keep note of the date, but there was never a countdown. We can learn so much from this. We need to be ready for however long this might take. Rather focus on ourselves, our mental and physical well-being, than counting down the hours. Our sleeping patterns are all disturbed. I find myself up late at night, napping in the afternoon and then not being able to sleep at night. When Madiba told me that they were woken up at 4.30 in the morning, come winter or summer, I thought it was just ridiculous. Why? I would ask. He said that routine was important, even in prison. He learned early to use his time wisely. They would be woken up, but some time would pass before the doors and the gates to their prison cells would be opened. So what, other than wait, would you do, was my next question. He was entertained by my inquisitive nature. Oh no, you see, I would then exercise. Upon which I would say, how? I could simply not imagine exercising in a six by seven foot prison cell. Casually he would explain that he would do push-ups, sit-ups and run on the spot. It's only when I started traveling with him and were able to witness his daily routine that it struck me that he still kept the same hours and routine from prison years. Every morning, no matter where we were in the world, he would wake up early and exercise in his room before his day started. I learned that self-discipline was part of his character. In the 60s, before his imprisonment, when he went underground, he was in hiding in Johannesburg at the apartment of a Mr. Wolfie Kudesh. I later met Mr. Kudesh and was amused when he told me that even before imprisonment, Madiba got up before the crack of dawn to run on the spot in his small apartment. Although he never would have admitted it, I'm sure it caused great frustration with the host. The point is, exercising is important in whatever shape or form, and if it's possible in a 6 by 7 feet prison cell, then I have no excuse. In prison, when doors were opened, prisoners had to clean and prepare for their meager breakfast that consisted of porridge made from maize and weak tea. For many years, that was exactly what he preferred for breakfast. His luxury version thereof was to add a hand of raw nuts and some warm milk. No sugar and even healthy meals with no snacking in between was what he lived by. A healthy diet is therefore of the utmost importance, also to feed our souls during this time. After his retirement from public office, Nelson Mandela picked up pace. He would work non-stop, and I described those years as the crazy years, trying to maneuver between what he set out for himself to achieve and what others relied on him for. Out of the blue, he would then say, You know Zaldina, as he called me, 
I miss prison. I would then say, no, Kulu, meaning grandfather in Koza, don't say that. It's a terrible thing to say. He explained that he was missing time to think. It is only when one takes the time to think and analyze things that you can come up with a clear perspective and solutions. So now, lockdown provides us with a few opportunities if we take lessons from how Nelson Mandela dealt with a long period of confinement. We can either be frustrated about our situation, sulk, be angry, or we can grow as human beings, having a very unique opportunity to ourselves in this uncertain time. We have a deadline, and it may not be tomorrow, or in two, three, or even six weeks. We know there will be a day when we can go around chasing whatever we feel necessitates our time and energy. Listen to those around you with the intention to understand, and yes, listen to government in this time, for they need our support. Lastly, take time to think. It's a luxury. Be kind and considerate and take care of yourself. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. There's a renewed focus on China's failure to warn the rest of the world about COVID-19, a virus which made the leap from animal to human via a wet food market in the city of Wuhan. Associated Press today published estimates from experts who concluded that there were six key days which would have made a huge difference. Meanwhile, U.S. President Donald Trump came in for renewed criticism today after suspending funding for the World Health Organization. Here's his reasoning. The WHO failed to investigate credible reports from sources in Wuhan that conflicted directly with the Chinese government's official accounts. There was credible information to suspect human-to-human transmission in December 2019, which should have spurred the date and investigate immediately. Through the middle of January, it parroted and published the idea that there was not human-to-human transmission happening despite reports and clear evidence to the contrary. The delays the WHO experienced in declaring a public health emergency cost valuable time, tremendous amounts of time, More time was lost in the delay it took to get a team of international experts in to examine the outbreak, which we wanted to do, which they should have done. The inability of the WHO to obtain virus samples to this date has deprived the scientific community of essential data. New data that emerges across the world on a daily basis points to the unreliability of the initial reports, and the world received all sorts of false information about transmission and mortality. The silence of the WHO on the disappearance of scientific researchers and doctors and on new restrictions on the sharing of research into the origins of COVID-19 in the country of origin is deeply concerning, especially when we put up by far the largest amount of money. Not even close. Had the WHO done its job to get medical experts into China to objectively assess the situation on the ground, 
and to call out China's lack of transparency. The outbreak could have been contained at its source with very little death, very little death, and certainly very little death by comparison. This would have saved thousands of lives and avoided worldwide economic damage. Instead, the WHO willingly took China's assurances to face value, and they took it just at face value and defended the actions of the Chinese government, even praising China for its so-called transparency. I don't think so. The WHO pushed China's misinformation about the virus, saying it was not communicable and there was no need for travel bans. They told us when we put on our travel ban, a very strong travel ban, there was no need to do it. Don't do it. They actually fought us. The WHO's reliance on China's disclosures likely caused a 20-fold increase in cases worldwide, and it may be much more than that. American taxpayers provide between $400 million and $500 million per year to the WHO. In contrast, China contributes roughly $40 million a year and even less. As the organization's leading sponsor, the United States has a duty to insist on full accountability. The world depends on the WHO to work with countries to ensure that accurate information about international health threats is shared in a timely manner. And if it's not, to independently tell the world the truth about what is happening. The WHO failed in this basic duty and must be held accountable. It's time after all of these decades. Inside COVID-19, from News. In any war, the most interesting stories are those from the front line. And for Americans, New York is where the battle is most intense. Among the nation's favorite correspondents right now is Dr. David Price, an ICU doctor who only takes care of patients with COVID-19. Here's his advice on how to protect your family against the virus. So the first step, which I think is incredibly clear, is to become a hand Nazi. Know where your hands are and know that they're clean at all times. So very simply for what this means for me in the city is that I walk around with Purell. Is someone not muted? I think. So walk around with Purell. And so every when I leave my apartment, everything that I see that I'm going to touch, I make sure that I Purell first. So when I leave my apartment door and I go to the elevator, it's okay that if I touch it with my hand, but then I Purell it. When I go downstairs and I open the door, it's okay to touch the door. You, you can open it with your elbow, but if you touch the door, then I make sure to Purell it. So we know that if you keep your hands clean, that you're not going to get this. The second point is that this is not a disease that we're getting because someone is sick and touched something and then an entire community of 10 people get it because they touch that. It's mostly from sustained contact with people who have COVID-19. Out of abundance of caution, we also make sure that everything we touch, we're cleaning our hands. So that's the first thing is become a hand Nazi. Everything you know about your hands, just keep them clean and you will not get this disease. The second thing is you have to start psychologically working on the connection between your hands and your face. So I'm terrible at this. I touch my face all the time, literally all the time. Um, you don't even realize it. you move your hand. 
you know, you scratch your nose. And so the virus has taken advantage of this. And the reason why everyone gets this disease is because you have sustained contact with someone. So someone at a party has this and you shake their hand, right? And then you touch your face. It's that simple. That is how you get this disease. So what does that mean? I think there's two practical things that you can do. One is just to start to be aware of when you touch your face. Atul Gawande, who is a um, uh, Harvard-trained surgeon, I think is very famous, um, actually has a recommendation for people to just start wearing masks. And the idea here is not that the mask is going to prevent you from getting COVID, because as I said, it's not a disease that you're most likely getting from the air. But the reason to put on a mask is because, and I do this in the hospital, is you stop touching your face. And so what I would recommend is now when you're leaving your house, is to wear a mask. And it's and I think those two things combined is incredibly powerful and will prevent the transmission of the disease in your family in 99% of cases. To know your hands are clean and to not touch your face. Period. There are going to be an obscure 0.01% of patients who get it and will just never know. But I think for you that is an incredibly important way to um to, to protect yourself. Three, you don't need a medical mask. You don't need a medical mask. These masks that people are wearing are not protecting them from getting the disease. And front care healthline workers need these masks right now. That's not to say don't wear a medical mask. If you have one, that's great. Put it on. But it doesn't mean you have to have a wild supply of masks or N95s or anything like that. The general community has zero need for an N95 mask, zero. In the hospital, where all I do is take care of patients with COVID-19, I only wear a mask, of N95 mask, if I'm in the room with that patient doing something that's going to make them have aerosolization of the, the, the virus. That is no one in the community. So to summarize, always know where your hands are. And what I mean by that is when you leave, just become aware of when you're touching stuff that's not from your protected home environment. So if you're going to go to the grocery store, if you're going to touch the, the cart, just clean the handle. If you go into the store and you see people around, don't touch them. It's incredibly simple. The fourth thing that I'll say, which is the thing that the, the government is talking about and kind of is the same principle, is distance yourself. And so this is incredibly fascinating in New York City now, is that nobody is going within three to six feet of each other. And it actually has not changed our life that much. And so I think when you go to the pharmacy, because people are going to the pharmacy now, you don't have to wait directly in line with someone. You can stand a couple feet back. And so the four things, I think I said four things. Always know where your hands are and have Purell. When you touch stuff that's outside your home, just make sure that you're washing your hand. Start to learn how to not touch your face. A really good way to do that is to start wearing a mask when you're out. And if you want to practice, wear a mask when you're home. Number three is you don't need an N95 mask or, or a medical mask. Any mask will do because this is not preventing the disease. This is training you. And then the fourth thing is just stay away from people. So that's the nitty gritty of. That's not stay away from people. Stay three to six feet away from people. 
So that is the nitty gritty of not how to give yourself this disease or get it from your community um, where it is at this time. So I think this, when you understand those four rules, the next thing that I think is so important becomes true. You don't have to be scared of the outside world now. You don't have to be scared of your neighbor. And I have actually found that to be incredibly liberating right now. So in New York City, um, we're receiving food from delivery men. Um, we have to go outside to the grocery store. Um, it's a time when we're all really scared. Um, and I think it's what makes it worse is to when you go outside and to look and think that the person next to you is going to somehow harm you or harm your family. But when you know that the only way you're going to get this disease is if your hands are dirty and that if you touch your face and that if you are way too close to that person, that becomes incredibly liberating. And then all of a sudden, the person at the store is not your enemy. There's someone who's going through this with you. The delivery person is not your enemy. They're a hero. They're going out and, and delivering food at a time when there's a communicable disease that they don't understand. The mailman is a hero. You know, these are people that we have to, the same way we're acknowledging and celebrating healthcare providers, when you understand this disease and know exactly what to do to prevent getting it, then it allows us for the next couple of weeks to months to be able to, to sustain the system that we have. We have to be able to have mail. We have to be able to get delivery and seamless in New York City. It's the only way we eat. Um, but if you can protect yourself and you know your family's safe, then I think that's empowering. Socially, this is incredibly important, and we did this at my mom's house, is you have to shrink your social circle. And so what does that mean? So in our family, um, I think you guys know that my parents live on a farm. Um, we had a lot of traffic through the farm. We had um, families um, who, uh, we could, uh, um, who come and see the horses, um, who ride the horses. Um, but you have to understand that every person, um, every one of those people have potentially two or three other contacts and two or three other contacts. And so what I would highly encourage you guys to do as the country is shutting down is find your isolation group, find your, um, your, your group of three people, four people, your family, um, and set boundaries. That is it. The people who are going to get this are people who are maintaining large social circles at this point. So what did that mean for my family? And so Jean Young um, and our kids and my mom are on the farm. They're at the Hopewell house. And that is exclusively the social circle that they're, they're circling in. They talk to their family every day. They see people, you know, like through FaceTime. But there's no one coming in and out of the house they can still go to the store and you can go to the store without any fear because you know, if you wash your hands and you don't touch your face, you're not going to get this disease. And so it's very important at this point to keep your social circles small. Don't have, don't be going to the Elks club or the Elks club, excuse me. Um, don't be putting yourself in a situation where you have a lot of contact with a lot of people because it's just a vulnerability. You don't know that the person at the farm who you slapped hands with two days later will not have this disease. So the third thing um, that I want to um, talk about is something that is inevitable. What do you do if you get this disease? And this is, I think, if you listen to nothing else through this entire thing, just please listen to this part. 
in Wuhan, China, um, throughout the world, the vast majority of spread of COVID-19 is through home and family transmission. So I'll say that again. Throughout the world, the way this is transmitted is from husband to wife, father to son, daughter to brother, whatever. Um, and so, again, that's incredibly scary, but it's also something that if you understand the rules is incredibly empowering. So what do you do? If you develop a fever and you are otherwise fine, and isolate yourself from your family. So what does that mean? It's just simply about the same rules about your hands and touching your face is you don't want sustained contact with the person who's sick to the point where you're going to be able to pick this up off of surfaces or off their person and then touch your face. So what are people recommending? If you're able, have the person in a separate room. If you're able, have the person um, who's sick have their own bathroom. If the person has to come out and interact with people in the family, this is a perfect indication for one medical mask. And the reason is you want to put the mask on the person who's sick. And so if in our apartment, if I was sick and I had to come out and interact with my family, before I would leave the bedroom, I would wash my hands, I would put on a mask, and then I would go out and maybe I would sit down and eat food at the table. And then after that, when I was done, I would eat the food, I would put it in the sink, I would make sure that anything I touched, which is a very simple area on the table, is just washed, and then I would go back to my room. And so the point is to not have sustained contact with someone in your home who has this disease. You're gonna wanna take care of them. You're gonna wanna be in and out of there. How are you doing? Checking their temperature. Don't do it. If you're touching the temperature probe constantly to their mouth, that is where the disease exists. And then you're going to get it on your hands, and then you're going to touch your face. And so you shouldn't be scared to stay at home with your family with a fever if you have COVID-19. The vast majority of people are going to have a fever, body aches, feel like shit for three to five days, feel a little less, less shit on seven, and then they're going to start to feel better. You can start interacting with your family more as you feel better, as your fever is gone, but you're still going to be vigilant. You're going to be washing your hands. You're going to be a lot more confident 20 days out from the disease than you are 10 days out from the disease. The current recommendation from the CDC is that if I get sick and if I'm feeling better, I can put on a mask and go to work. And so I think that that is a good indication to you that that's when you can start interacting with your family is that if you have COVID and you've recovered and you've isolated in your, your, your room for seven days and you've been able to get food. And when you've been with your family, you've worn a mask and you're feeling better, come back out to your, your family's life, keep a mask on and wash your hands. And so I think that that is a very simple way to do it. I'm about to get to questions. Um, I just want to make a few other small points because this is some stuff that's come up that's relevant in New York City. What do I do if I have a mild cold? And so I think given how rampant COVID-19 is at this point, I think if you have something that feels like a cold or you feel like you're getting sick, is take the precautions like you have COVID-19 for one to two days. If in one to two days, you're feeling much better 
and this is like the thousand other colds that you've had in the past year because you have kids, you don't have COVID-19. And then you can go back to your completely normal um, living at home life with your family. So I think it's just important. The, the place we get into danger is people being too cavalier when they're developing symptoms and giving, um, exposing their family too early. And then when they get fevers and they're staying at home is that they're having too, in, too much interaction with your family. You can have COVID-19 in your house and everyone else not get it and be protected and be completely safe. There are a couple exceptions to that, and I think this is important. If you have a vulnerable population in your family, so if you're living with your um, lovely 95-year-old grandmother, um, if you know there's someone in your house who had recent chemotherapy and someone in the house gets sick, you need to find another living arrangement for that patient or practice incredibly, incredibly strict isolation of that family member. We know that the, the older population is the, the sickest population um, when they get this disease. And so that is the one caveat to the it's safe to stay home with your family is if you have someone who's incredibly vulnerable, you need to um, set up a situation in the house where they're completely isolated from the person who is sick. Um, maybe you could have another person um, take care of that family member in your house so you have no interaction. But simply being in the home with someone with COVID-19 will not get you that disease. It goes back to the same three principles. It's touching a person or a surface who has COVID-19 and then touching your face. This has been episode 18 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.